welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our scripture meditation for worship this morning comes from Deuteronomy, chapter 32, 35, and 36. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants, when he sees that their power is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, vengeance is yours with the wicked. We need to remember that you repay, and it is not our place to effect the vengeance that is yours. You will vindicate your people. We pray for the compassion on your servants, which you promise, and we pray to see your power and your righteousness made known to all the peoples of the earth. When we are in distress, we cry out, and you hear us. Hear our prayers and our petitions this morning as we seek to lift up your name and bring you glory. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. We've been uh, jogging through Jeremiah and our to the word reading this last week or so. And uh, portions of chapters 16 and 17 are always uh, very, very good. And I wanted to kind of reflect on chapter 17 a little bit this morning. Chapter 17 says this, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of your heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil, as for the price of your high places, for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. The sin of Jerusalem was hot in God's eyes as they had prostrated themselves again and again before the gods of men and worshipped the false gods of their neighbors and even their enemies. Written with a pen of iron, the point of a diamond, giving the sense that there was this permanence in these sins. As we read through Jeremiah, we are more and more aware of God's judgment which he was pronouncing, which was coming And there was a point in which he was not going to turn away. It was certainly going to happen. His wrath was coming and their doom was certain. The Lord continued in chapter 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. 
verses 7 through 9 are some very popular verses in Jeremiah, some well-known. Right now, I've just repeated verses 7 and 9 here. But we often refer to verse 9 when we're talking about the depravity of man, how man's heart is desperately wicked or sick. Sick is the ESV translation. I prefer wicked. It sounds more firm. So left alone to our own devices, we are given over to depraved minds. Devin has preached on this to us. But praise God that he has renewed our minds and that we can be blessed as the one who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. It is a supernatural thing for us so that we can trust God. To be able to trust God and believe in him is the work of the Spirit and is a supernatural working. As believers, we need to remember that and we need to praise God for it. We have so many reminders in Scripture of how quick God's own people perhaps even us in this room, can forget the promises of God. There are promises to be held and blessings to those who remember God's God's commands and his covenant. Conversely, there are curses to those who forget God, disobey, and make a mockery of his grace and his provision for us. May we continue to strive to be those who remember in our times of forgetfulness to repent and to seek God wholly for our restoration and salvation. It is times of intense trial that often we need to rely on those reminders of God's faithfulness, of God's promises, but it can also be those times of trial when it's the hardest to do so. Reminders of this in our life should be held on to and cherished. He's already done the supernatural work in us. God has already done the heavy lifting. He promises not to forget or abandon those who are true to the Lord. So may we not forget, may we repent and believe all of the promises that God has given us. And with this in mind, let us come to God in prayer and confess our sins. So as you are able, please kneel with me in corporate confession, and we will recite the prayer found in the bulletin together, followed by a moment of silence. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. People of of God, hear the good news and believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Scripture reading this morning is Revelation chapter 12. Verses 10 and 11. Hear God's word. Now I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. may be seated. When I was in high school, I had the opportunity to... Oh, by the way, it's it's good to be here with you. Um, I bring with with me um, the greetings and the prayers and and the love of uh, your sister church in Oregon City, Reformation Covenant Church. Um, we do pray for you, and, and, and I will bring back, I'm glad to bring back a good report. This room is, looks like it's filling up. This is glorious. Um, so when I was in high school, I did some traveling with a friend uh, who was French. And, um, and so he, uh, he was able to take take us around to different places in France as a, as a person who was a native there. And that was, that was wonderful. And one of the best uh, places that we were able to go was the Louvre Museum in Paris. And in the, in the Louvre, there is this grand staircase, and it goes up, 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 way up high. 
And uh, this was one of my favorite places in the museum because they have created, I love it when art um, really kind of matches the space in which it's, which it's set. Sometimes you come to these paintings and things and they're just sitting there in a wall and they're just next to another one or maybe a statue somewhere. But when you have a statue that sits gloriously in a place and it really captures the, the, the mood of that, that place, it's, it's, it's really a um, wonderful experience. At the top of the stairs, just kind of leaning over the top, is this statue, which they call Nike. And as you probably know, Nike is the Greek word for victory or overcoming. And you really get the sense of impression of one who has truly walked all the way to the top of the stairs. No, it, the, the statue has wings. So it's, it's this image of flying down and landing victoriously after overcoming. Um, it's the goddess, the Greek goddess of victory or overcoming. I will never forget it. And that is the image that I would begin with because that is what we as Christians are called to aspire to, to become overcomers, not to be Greek goddesses, but to, to be overcomers, to be victorious. I think that uh, sometimes in the Christian, especially the evangelical uh, kind of revivalistic tradition. We have this idea that what we are called to is to get saved. And so there's gospel presentation. We, How many people got saved? How many people made a profession of faith? How many people got saved? And we count those, and we count those, and we count those, and we write them down in our ledger. And we think that that is the moment of uh, greatest importance in the Christian life is when you got saved. And I think that that is absolutely one biblical perspective on the Christian life. But there's another biblical perspective on the Christian life. The Apostle Paul in Colossians says that it is his goal, it's his goal to present people complete at the end of their lives, to bring people all the way through all the trials and tribulations of this life and to bring them to glory. That's his mission statement. His mission statement was not just to call sinners and get them saved, but then to shepherd them all the way through the trials and travails of life. In fact, he says this to Timothy, a pastor over the church of Ephesus. He says, you, Timothy, you, pastor, take heed of your life and your ministry and the word of God. Watch yourself carefully. Because if you do this, you will save yourself. Which is a very strange thing to say to a Christian pastor. You will save yourself and those who hear you. But what he is referring to there is not a conversion experience. He's already a converted man. He's a believing man. He is referring to this, uh, this desired goal of the Christian life to make it to the end strong in your faith. Many don't. Many do not make it all the way to the end. And it takes a particular type of faith and a grace from God. And of course, that would be my concern today. To press you on in this moment towards becoming an overcomer. To be an overcomer is everything. It's everything. In uh, seven times in the first Three chapters of Revelation. The churches are exhorted to press on to become overcomers. Overcomers. The Lord Jesus repeats this to the church seven times. If you overcome, he says, and he promises glorious things to those who overcome. To those who are victorious. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who overcomes, they will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the one who overcomes and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. To the one who conquers, who overcomes, will be clothed thus in white garments, 
and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. To the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And finally, and I know I'm belaboring this, but I wanted to show you this is very important. These are a a glorious depiction of what we would call eternal life or our inheritance as saints. And finally, the one who conquers, overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So I hope you feel the weight of that, the weight of that, that glory pressing in on you. This is the most urgent matter that we could attend to. Nothing is more pressing and nothing should take us off this purpose to overcome to overcome so how do you know that you are on the path of the overcomer what are the marks of a person who lives like this what what describes them we read in revelation 12 a description of overcomers these are people who overcame These were people who were men and women, boys and girls, who the Lord Jesus declared them to be overcomers. And if we look closely at their life, there's much to inform us on how we follow after them in this path. Now, I need to say a word here about Revelation. We're reading from the Revelation. This is an interesting book. I am guessing that if we were to all write down, if I was to do a quick exam, what is the revelation describing? Um, we would probably have, there's, looks like there's about 90 people in this room. I don't know how many people are in this room. We would probably have 110 answers to that question. I don't know where you are all coming from in that regard. I believe, I'll just tell you quickly, full disclosure, what I believe is that it is describing a group of faithful men and women in the first century of the church. Um, and uh, I believe there are very, very good reasons to believe that. Um, I'll just simply give you two. One is that repeatedly throughout Revelation, it is described as something that is very quickly about to take place. These events that are about to unfold um, are very quickly happening. This maps very closely with what I believe to be a a corresponding passage in Matthew uh, 24 and 25, and, and it begins even in 23, where Jesus tells his disciples what is about to happen, what is about to immediately take place. And so I believe it is describing this time period from when Jesus died and rose again all the way until the destruction of Jerusalem, and, um, and so there's, there's good reasons to believe that. I believe that you can identify pretty clearly what this character is, this harlot character is in Revelation. They, there's a lot of indications that this is the uh, Jerusalem, the ungodly, um, um, immoral, adulteress that has turned away from, from God. And, uh, and that's why you also have then this glorious bride at the, at the end. It, it is the, the church. Um, However, having said all that, this isn't going to be an exposition of Revelation. I would commend to you um, some commentaries. There are lots of really, really excellent commentaries that um, I think open it up pretty pretty simply. I, for much of my life, uh, believed a certain uh, view of the end times. And I was told in lectures and sermons and, and, and and things, much of what I just said to you, that uh, there's good commentaries, these things are out there. But when I would go to read them, I was more confused than I was before. So the charts could be made really, really clear. But the, the book of Revelation in some of those other eschatologies remains very, very confusing. But if the commentary is being informed... Now listen to this, if it's, being, if it's being informed by the other places of Scripture, 
it actually becomes pretty clear what is going on here. There are still things that are that confuse any interpreter. There's uh, disputes. But if you are allowing places like Zechariah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Matthew to inform and to, to help you to read and understand what is going on in the Revelation, um, I believe it, it, it can be made to make sense pretty easily. Now, as you probably noticed in our text, it doesn't simply say, and they overcame. What it says in our text is that they overcame him. They overcame him. And he is the accuser, the devil. Okay? Now, we need to understand, um, I'm not going to go into uh, great detail in terms of the whole understanding in the revelation of who Satan is, what he was doing during this time, um, what he perhaps the understanding of what he is still doing in the world, the forces of darkness are still doing in the world. But um, we do need to understand a few things about him to understand what it was that they have overcome. You see, before the cross of Christ, Satan had a position in this world which we perhaps don't understand anymore because it was done away with. He has lost his power and rule and authority in a, in a powerful way in the world. He was called the deceiver of the whole world in Revelation 12, like we read there. He was a deceiver of the whole world. The whole world was held captive by his lies. Okay? Well, that is quickly changing. The truth is spreading. And many people are coming to a knowledge of the truth. Okay, the light is the light is spreading. In Ephesians chapter two, um, it it describing Satan. It says that he is at work in the sons of disobedience, and they follow him. They follow him. Okay, he has a kind of power over these people, sons of disobedience, of which we were. Okay, but God has saved us out of that. Matthew chapter twelve describes him as the strong man. He was a strong man. Now, the reason why Jesus used that language, why Jesus called Satan the strong man, was to tell his disciples something about Satan. You, you can't beat Satan. You're not stronger than him. He's the strong man. You cannot go into his house and overcome the strong man. Okay? Now, if we don't learn anything else today, except this, is you will not overcome in your own strength. You don't overcome the accuser in your own strength. There's, there's no defeating of Satan just from human effort, human philosophy, human religion. It, it, it doesn't happen that way. But what Jesus says then is someone stronger comes into the house and binds the strong man. And that's Jesus. Jesus was stronger than the strong man. And he came into the house. Now, the strong man had his way on earth. He had his way on earth before Jesus, before his advent. But the stronger man has come. In Luke chapter 4, we have another perspective on what Satan's rule was like before the cross of Christ. The devil, it says, showed him, that is Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority. This is... The devil talking to the Son of God boldly. To you I will give all this authority and their glory. Now listen to this. He says this, this next line is really important. To understand what happened when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Satan says to Jesus, for they have been delivered to me. All the kingdoms of the world all their authority, they have been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. How did the world fall into such an estate where Satan says to the Son of God, this is mine. This belongs to me. 
I give it to whom I will. He's called the God of this world in other places in Scripture. We are looking at something which I freely admit we cannot fully understand. The, the story, the drama of the powers and principalities in the heavenly places, Satan's rise to power, the way in which Satan had some sort of rule over this, this world. We, we, we can't, I don't know of anybody, maybe Frank Peretti might try, but I don't know of anybody that could tell this whole story. How did this take place? What is going on here? Instead, what we are granted in Scripture is glimpses. We're just granted glimpses into how this came about. We know that from the beginning, um, the story of redemption was going to be one of great conflict between On the one hand, the seed of the woman, and on the other hand, the seed of the serpent. This is a cosmic war that has been taking place from the beginning between these powers. We we see also a little bit later in Deuteronomy chapter 32 that all the nations of the world had been handed over to the rule of the sons of God, which in that context refers to angelic powers. And those angelic powers were not always faithful to God. Okay? You can see this in a number of different places. In Psalm 82, God comes down in judgment on these beings and says to them, you ought to have ruled justly, but instead you've been unjust. And so you will die like men. You will perish. And God, it says, will inherit the nations, which is a very, very strange sentence. God will inherit the nations. He is God. And yet you can see somehow in the story, the powers of darkness lay claim to to the to the nations of the world. They lay claim to it in a legal way, which escapes us somehow how this has come about in this way. Okay. But God declares there and in a number of different places, it's not going to be this way forever. It's not going to be this way forever. God will inherit all the nations. God declares triumphantly in a number of places, all the nations of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The nations shall stream to Zion. It it will all be redeemed. But in this temporary moment of time, Satan has dominion. Satan has dominion. It's very interesting. But then at the cross, at the cross, there the conflict that began there in the garden, that enmity between the, the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman comes head to head. And Satan believes in that moment. We know He believes in that moment that he has victory, total victory. He believed that this was the moment of of conquest. Jesus said about those at that moment, at that night when he was betrayed, he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. In Luke 22, the work was satanic. Judas' work was satanic, betraying, um, betraying the Lord. But they did not understand. They did not understand that by crucifying Jesus, they were going to lose their power. They were going to lose their authority and be undone. First Corinthians 2, Paul says this, none of the rulers of this age understood. They did not understand this. If they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In their anger and hatred for Jesus, they crucified him. They, they came together, not just the earthly powers, but the heavenly powers came together, put him to death. But in so doing, they lost their authority. They lost the basis of their authority. They lost the power of their authority. Revelation, I'm sorry, in John chapter 12, Jesus predicts this. 
He says this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And that's what we see when we look at Revelation chapter 12. Satan is cast down. He has lost his place. And these saints are overcomers. They overcome him. The serpent's head is crushed. The serpent's head is being crushed. And it is through the church that this takes place. As was predicted in Romans, Paul said to the church in Rome, God will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Underneath your feet. So Satan was ultimately conquered at the cross. But then, obviously, what happened is is that the nations didn't immediately flood themselves with light and truth and joy and peace and glory. It didn't happen that way. Satan's kingdom lost the basis of its authority, but there was still this cleaning up job to do, which was quite a, quite a feat. The saints would be the ones by, through whom Jesus would conquer the nations and overcome now, how do they do this? How do saints overcome the dark one? What do they do? Is it through spells? Is it through direct hand-to-hand combat? Are they given this kind of supernatural powers by which they can fight and wrestle off demons? What is it? It plainly tells us. How is it that these humble men and women, boys and girls overcome the strong man and crush his head underneath their feet. Three things it tells us that they do. Three things it tells us that they do. The first one is it says they overcome by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. And this would make sense because this is what was simply declared to be the moment of great defeat for Satan was the cross of Christ. One of the ways that Satan maintained his grip on humanity was through their guilt. He was, after all, an accuser. He was an accuser. That's what diabolos means. From the garden, Satan knew that if he could corrupt man and woman, that they would be controllable, uh, manipulate, uh, able to be manipulated. When he succeeded in tempting Adam and the woman, he surely believed his victory was final. I have them. They are no longer on that guy's side. They're on my side. They are rebels like me. And mine is a kingdom of rebels. He must have scratched his little devil head the moment that God comes into the garden and says, no, it's not going to work out exactly like you think. Satan, you think you've captured these slaves. You think that through them, that you now have subjects that have been fully corrupted and are now just completely on your side. It's not going to work out that way. It's not going to work out that way. In fact, in fact, I'm going to put war between you two. They will fight on my side, God says. And, and... The seed of the woman will crush your head. Will crush your head. But Satan continued his kingdom, his, his, his vice grip on these fallen, lost, deceived creatures, full of guilt, full of brokenness and and sin. And his accusations stuck. His accusations stuck. In Zechariah 3, we see this same dynamic taking place. If you, um, if you were to look there, what you would see in that passage is an image of a high priest who has filthy clothes, and Satan is accusing him, is accusing him, and God rebukes him. God rebukes him and says, God says to him, uh, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And he is given 
robes that are white and a crown is put on his head. And again, Satan must have scratched his head and said, how is this possible to just give this one white robes to just declare him clean? How does this take place? They this one belongs to me and not to you. It says he accused them day and night. These are curses and anti prayers. He has been pleading with God from the garden. They deserve to die. They deserve to die. This one deserves to die. This one is mine. But then one day his mouth was stopped. His accusations suddenly lost their force and God rebuked him. He was undone. The blood of Christ fulfilled what all the images, all of the prophecies, all of these depictions of God justifying the wicked all suddenly become perfectly fulfilled in this. Revelation 1.5, John describes this perfectly. He says, to him, to Christ, who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Sin has nothing on you, and so Satan has nothing on you. It is not a master over you, and as far as God is concerned, we are just. In chapter 7 of Revelation, similar imagery of Zechariah 3, it says robes are given to the saints to wear. With one difference, it says of the Christians, they have washed their robes. And made them white. Think of this. In the blood of the Lamb. In the blood of the Lamb. They stand in heaven with white robes that have been washed in blood. And nothing can remove them. The blood of Christ not only serves as this, uh, uh, the basis of the forgiveness of our sins. But it also becomes the basis of all of our good works. As we said before. We do not overcome the strong man in our own strength. Even if God declares us to be forgiven of our sins, we still must live in this world in a way to overcome. To overcome. It is not just that they have been declared just that they overcome. But as you'll see, it's their actions. It's the life that comes out of this. The blood of Christ declares them righteous, but it also is the basis upon which they are empowered by God and strengthened by God to live as saints. Revelation 19, it was granted to the bride of Christ to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Everything is given to you. Your place, your your, your guiltlessness, your innocence, your justification, and also the life that you need to live to overcome the evil one. Now, your sin is real, sinners. Dear sinners, your sin is real. It is real. The enemy and his offspring would would try to continually remind you of your guilt and shame, sometimes real and sometimes misplaced. They want to make your head stoop down Low. They want you to feel overcome by your guilt and your shame. But who are you? Remember who you are. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. Remember what he has done for you in Christ. He, you are his child. And I tell you today that if you have joined yourself truly to Christ... His atoning work has made a place for you in heaven, in his kingdom, which cannot be taken away. And not merely on this earth, not merely justified on this earth, but forever in heaven. A redemption that does not stretch from one end of the cosmos to the other is not a redemption. Indeed, our redemption goes all the way to the highest place in heaven. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. 
a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue could bid me thence depart. Do you believe that Satan could pry? Now think about this. Could, could Satan pry the Lord Jesus from the right hand of the Father? Could Satan level an accusation against Jesus, which would bring shame upon Jesus and make him go cowering back down to earth? Could Satan, through all of his machinations, could he find some device or scheme to remove Jesus from that place? Well, I tell you, he could just as soon remove you from that place if you abide in Christ. Nothing can overcome you if you are in Christ. We overcome through him and through his blood. He has made the way complete for us. But we have something to do here. Again, you will hear some people say, and the depiction of the Christian life is, I got saved back then. But God's salvation is something that brings people to a place, to a place of glory. It brings them through trials and tribulations. It does things in this world. It accomplishes things in this world. It's not just a redemption that you just... you. You went forward, you were baptized, your name was written down, and then you just sit around and wait and wait. That's not the Christian life. It's not redemption. It's not what the blood of Christ does in us. It says here, I'll read this again in Revelation 12. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. We have a testimony to keep. We are a people of the testimony. Testimony is an interesting word. The Apostle John, who wrote Revelation, says at the very beginning that he was uh, in exile on Patmos. Because of this, he was testifying of the testimony of Jesus. He was a testimony man. He was bearing witness. He was speaking the truth, and it got him into trouble. But that was his calling. His calling was to bear witness, to be a man of the testimony, and to keep it. It's what we're called to do, and that's what it looks like for us to overcome, to faithfully uphold the testimony. Now, what comes into your mind when you hear the word Testimony. Again, many of us are perhaps corrupted in our thinking because of the way in which words are sometimes used in evangelicalism and, and in popular Christian culture. And what, what I always thought testimony meant growing up was, well, tell the story about how you became a Christian. And um, listen, that's a great thing to do. I don't have any uh, qualms with people saying, how did you become a Christian? I think that's, I think that's wonderful. One of the, my favorite books... Um, is the story of a person's conversion, Augustine's Confessions, which is basically how what his thought life was like and, and the people praying for him and teaching him and correcting him and helping him all the way through his life and up to the point where he becomes a Christian. And it just kind of shows uh, like all of these influences and how, how God saves people. And that's wonderful and that's glorious. There's other books um, uh, C.S. Lewis has a book about his the story of his early life, which is wonderful. Um, but that's not what's going on here exactly. That's not exactly what is going on here. For one thing, that's not something that necessarily people might be ashamed of. You see, in Revelation, we have two groups of people. There are those who have kept the testimony and those who have not. Well, what would that even mean in the context of your own story of how you became a Christian? You, did, you didn't remember that story? You became embarrassed about it or something like that? What does that mean? That's not what is going on here. The testimony is something that must be defended, kept, guarded, upheld. It is the true story 
and teaching about Jesus with reference to its defense and confirmation. Whereas the word gospel is only used once in all of John's writings. I believe that the gospel of John, same author, is the author of the Revelation. I believe they're the same. Some people don't. But I believe they are the same. And all throughout this literature, you find the word gospel one time. That is not to say it's not an important New Testament word. The word, though, when he sat down to write an account of what was going on and what it means for Christians, the word that he uses again and again and again is the testimony. The testimony. It is a legal term. That is the idea. He is summoning people not only to believe in good news. It is a gospel. It's what it is. It's good news. But he is summoning Christians to bear witness in the courtroom of the world, before the eyes of men, before the eyes of the accuser, before the eyes of God, in vindication of who Jesus claims to be and what he has done, And what my relationship is to him is to bear witness to those things. The word witness is a real... You see, this is a word that is used... uh, It's translated into English a number of different ways. It could be testimony. It could be uh, witness. Sometimes when it's in a noun form, it's actually translated martyr. Okay, Which is where we get this idea of martyrdom as people who held to the testimony to the point of death, which is often the price that they have to pay. Uh, witness, testimony, testify, that's the same word throughout all of this literature. Several times in the gospel, it says the father bears witness. The father takes the stand and tells the courtroom who Jesus is and what he thinks of him. The Old Testament is called a witness to who Jesus is. John the Baptist's ministry was one of being a witness Pointing people, I know who this is, and I testify to you who this person is. Jesus himself is called the faithful witness. Numerous times in the gospel. And in the upper room discourse, which forms basically a, a, a large part of the second half of the gospel of John. Jesus prepares his disciples And instructing them, you are going to be my witnesses. And I'm going to send a witness to you who will bear witness through you. And that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also called a witness. But it's not just being an objective observer. It's not like today we might have in a criminal trial of like a, uh, you know, there's some kind of murder and you, you, you hire you know, a, a person who knows all about handguns and things like that, and they come up and sit on the stand and they point at charts and things like that, and, and they bear witness just objectively. That's not what this is. In this case, the idea is much more of advocating for. It is bearing witness so that you might convince people of the truth of it. We're not just objective observers of Jesus. We are a people who have an interest in Jesus. And we are clearly on his side. And it's more than that. It's It's not just bearing witness, and it's not just advocating for. It is doing so to the point of suffering. Suffering. The witness of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, is a very interesting substance in John's writings. It's like a hot coal. It's painful to bear it. It's hard to bear it. The world can't stand it. When they see the witness of Jesus, when they hear the witness of Jesus and who he is, they, they get riled up. They get furious. They get angry at it. And for those who, who are called and summoned to, to take it up and to uphold it, It brings with it suffering. There is a cost to holding on to the testimony of Jesus. But we must hold on to it. We must hold on to it. The person on your right will be furious with you. 
The person on your left will go cowering away and you thought they were your friend, your coworker. You will lose jobs over this. Families will be divided over this. Churches will be split over this. But that's what happens. And that is what God calls his people to do, to bear witness. The chapter before this, we have this word witness again. There's two witnesses in chapter 11. And their ministry is described like this. This gives you a really good image of what it means to bear witness in the world. Again, we could go to a really, really wrong place here interpreting this if we do not understand the symbolism of what is going on here. It's a very, very powerful picture. Okay, but these witnesses, it says they had um, they had become a torment to those who dwell on earth because they breathed fire in the world. When these witnesses opened their mouths, flames of fire came rushing out and tormented the people on earth. Now, unless you think that Christians in the future age are going to turn into these powerful warlock Creatures that are rolling fireballs all around everything. You need to understand this is a symbol. But what tells you this is how the world sees the witness of Christ. It is painful. It torments them. It troubles them. It upsets them. And so what it says they did is they murdered these people. They murdered the witnesses. Chapter 11. That's what it means to witness. In the world. It's intense. John. Later in the revelation. Reflects on this. And tells us another perspective on it. I am a fellow servant. He says. With you. And your brothers. Who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is the spirit of prophecy. And you can see the flames of fire. These are prophetic words that have come out and have brought men to a place of deep conviction for their sins. It's what Jesus said would happen when the Holy Spirit comes. He will convict the world because of their sins. But we must open our mouths and speak what we know to be true. We have to talk. Bearing witness means speaking up. Even if it's uncomfortable. And let me add this. Especially where it's uncomfortable. Especially where it's uncomfortable. Martin Luther said, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity, where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches in that one point. In other words, you proved yourself very valiant all the way over here where there was no battle. That's great. Courage is tested right here on the front lines, always. There is a whole branch of Christianity today that has fashioned and formed and molded itself and kind of like a liquid filling a a container. It has formed itself entirely on the basis of what the world finds offensive or not offensive. They get their talking points from the news. When they put something out there and it it comes back in like a hostile way, they say, oh, that's not, mm, we uh, we need to shift our message a little bit to become winsome. Jesus wouldn't recognize that as his testimony. This is not just a word also to pastors and evangelists. The faithful martyrs in this passage were men and women, boys and girls. We could apply this in our day and age a thousand ways. 
pronouns. Will you bear witness to the truth, to the created order of things? It is an offense to our creator to deny the realities of gender. It's an offense to our creator. He created the world a specific way. And we don't need to be ashamed of that and apologize for that. But we will bear uh, suffering for that. People will lose their jobs for that. But this is the way by which God's kingdom spreads and the evil one is overcome. Finally and briefly, I would just note, because John notes, that it requires Christian courage. Christian courage, which I've already suggested. To hold the testimony of God is going to involve suffering. It's going to involve suffering. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Satan held the world in slavery in this way. Speaking um, here, he's talking about Jesus. He says, since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself partook of the same things. That through death, there's the blood of Christ, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that's Satan, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The screws that Satan would twist into the backs of people was fear of death. The means by which he was able to take out parts of the church and lead them astray was through fear of death. Through fear of death. Through fear of death. Through fear of suffering. Fear of death. That is how, that is how he had held the world under his, his power. John chapter 8, he is called a murderer. He despises the lives of humans. And he controls and manipulates them. In Revelation chapter 12, we have on both sides of it, two depictions of people bearing witness, but also of murder on both sides. In chapter 11, as I, as I referred to before, those two witnesses... They are murdered by the beast. Their bodies lie in the city where the Lord was crucified. That is Jerusalem. And then in chapter 13, the saints, just speaking generally, are murdered by the beast. The dragon, that is Satan, gave his authority to the beast. And in the same manner that Satan offered all the kingdoms of earth to Jesus, if only he would worship him, so now this beast is given all of his authority, is poured it on this this, uh, this evil human ruler is what's going on there. And in that passage, it says the beast, same word, conquered the saints. He overcame them. Well, what is it? Do the saints overcome Satan or does Satan overcome the saints? And the answer is yes. It is yes. Satan has his way with the saints mortally. The first century was filled with violence and murder. And as we read throughout the book of Acts and Hebrews, people were thrown in prison. People, families were separated. Trouble, trial, tribulation. And from one perspective, you could look at this whole scene and say, look, look, Satan is winning. He is overcoming them. But the fact that they would not let go of the testimony is what overcame Satan and his beast. They went to the grave with their hands clutching the testimony of Christ. And Satan's kingdom crumbled as a result of it. It's not, a, it's not a real overcoming. These were victorious. These were victorious in death.
I'll just finish up. You will... Uh, I, C.S. Lewis is the person who said um, in, a, in Mere Christianity, after explaining all of these virtues, when he came to courage, he said, this is actually all of the virtues taken to their testing point. Taken to their testing point. You know, I think the thing that I want to just leave you with is this idea Courage, human courage, is a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It, uh, we're seeing images of that in the war in Ukraine. Uh, men standing before Russian uh, uh, army, uh, defending their loved ones behind them, defending their homeland. They're, that is a beautiful thing. Human courage. Men willing to sacrifice. Women willing to sacrifice. Lay down their lives for others. But human courage is the kind of thing that can be found in graceless hearts. It can be simply a human feature. The type of courage of what we are seeing here is a distinctly Christian grace. It is a Christian grace that is as much connected to the testimony as it is connected to the blood of Christ. It is connected to the living Lord himself. He is the one who makes us able to overcome in the face of opposition. And I just finished with this example from the life of Peter. From the life of Peter. Peter, um, after, after what is called in Scripture the long day, okay, Jesus found out that John the Baptist had been beheaded in prison. Went out into the wilderness to be by himself and to pray. And to minister to his disciples, actually, and prepare them. For what was coming. Crowd, a multitude gathers to him. He feeds them, ministers to them, cares for them, sends his disciples out on a boat. This is now in, it's now nighttime. Dismisses the crowd, stays there to pray until the middle of the night, a long day for our Lord. And then it says he comes walking out to his disciples. This is in Matthew 14. He comes out to them walking on the water, walking on the storm, walking on the raging sea. And if you follow this theme of a raging sea in Scripture, of a, a tumultuous sea, you can, you can see that it is, it is an image that Scripture frequently uses to describe the raging Gentile powers, the violence of the world that seeks to swallow and take uh, uh, captive. Uh, it's the forces of chaos in the world. Jesus is not just walking out on the waters because i got to get to the other side real quick. You know, He is using the Sea of Galilee like a whiteboard, like an illustration, like a teaching tool to implant thoughts and ideas into his disciples' minds of how to overcome. And so what he does is he literally overcomes the storm, walking out on the water. But then something remarkable happens. Peter says to him, Lord, if that's you, make me to come out there with you. Jesus says, come. He gets out of the boat and he walks toward Jesus, walking on the water. He is not overcome by the storm. It is something that humans cannot do. We are not, we do not naturally have this kind of courage to overcome. But the moment Peter takes his eyes off of Christ and looks around at the raging sea, it says he begins to sink. He begins to sink. Your faith in Christ, your trust and confidence in him, your abiding in Him, your sitting at His table, your joining yourself to His people for mutual encouragement, for the strength and encouragement that comes from one anothering here and encouraging one another here and receiving the Word of God here. That is how you overcome. That is where your courage will come from. That will make you overcomers. Whatever Whatever we face, we have no idea what we're going to face. 
in 10, 20 years. Can anyone predict what we're going to be talking about in 20 years? Let alone two years. Who knows what is coming our direction. But I know this. Jesus has always gotten his people through. He stands with them. He upholds them. He strengthens them. He makes them, gives them the kind of courage that they need. The Holy Spirit is able to make you overcomers. Amen? Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. May God be glorified in the preaching of his word. It's now time for us to come to the table together as one body. It is our privilege to do so. It is established by Christ the night that he was betrayed in the hands of sinners. This is the consummation of our coming together on the Lord's Day. After we've called his name into worship, confessed our sins, and been declared forgiven. By the blood of Jesus, we've been sanctified through our common confessions, the reading of the word, the singing of psalms, and the preaching of the word. So now it is time for communion. Remember the process. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It's biblical. This is our pattern for life and godliness. As we get ready to distribute the bread and the cup, remember and believe that Christ gave up his body and blood for us, who are the called, according to his purpose. Remember that we are also called into the unity of the faith, and that these people around you who we commune with are brothers and sisters in Christ, one family. And remembering this, recall that we are to encourage and strengthen each other in the bond. Let us strive to do that by speaking truth and love, confronting and holding account where needed, but also resisting that desire to tear down, divide, or complain. So let us begin. So the charge is this, is to be overcomers, is to be conquer, is to remember your faith in Christ and how it delivers you from the ruler of this world. And now receive the benediction from 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.